1: Hi, this is Todd Curns from Slash, featuring Miles Kane, The Conspirators, Bruce Kulick, and a whole bunch of other stuff. You're listening to Jay Scott on the Hook Rocks. Hook Rocks, it is Jay Scott. Thanks again for coming by and taking a listen to what we're talking about today. We are part of the Pampion Podcast Network, great network of music related podcasts. As I mentioned in the beginning of every episode, you can check out my friends on the Shout Out Loudcast, Tom and Zeus, the great number one rated Kiss podcast, as well as Martin Popoff, the rock historian, Mistress Carrie, as well as Karma to Peace, Vinnie Apice on the Hanging and Bangin' podcast. And Mac on the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Great podcast overseas. And don't forget to check out Chris and Aaron on the Decibel Geek podcast. We've got some great episodes on the Hook Rocks recently. Like uh, we just had Todd Damakerns talking about his tour with Slash and the Creatures Fest and some other projects that he's working on. So check that out as well. Mark Cremonti on his Frank Sinatra album, Joe Satriani on his latest album, as well as some great new music spotlights featuring Deep Fall, Native Sons, Georgia Thunderbolts, and Stone Broken. So check out all of those. And great music commentary episode. We featured our live album review on Kiss Alive and also how to improve the acoustics in your home stereo audio system, what things you can do, free things that you can do to help better the sound quality in your home. So check out all those episodes and more. We're approaching our three-year anniversary. We're approaching our 400th episode. So thanks again for everyone tuning in. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we've got an interesting show lined up for you today, a show that resonates with me because the band we're going to be talking about is one of the bands that defined my youth in junior high and high school when I was growing up in the mid to mid-80s to mid-90s back in the day when bands were all over the place on MTV and on rock radio. That band was Guns N' Roses. And we have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Cantor, who is the co-host of the first 50 gigs, which is kind of a Visual documentation of those early days of Guns N' Roses, and Mark speaks to what it was like seeing the band from its beginnings into the worldwide international success that they were, superstars that they were. Like to welcome in Mark. How's it going, man? How you doing?
0: Pretty good. How you doing?
1: Doing well. Thanks again for doing this. I, uh, you know, always appreciate a guest who takes their time to come on the show. This is a really interesting subject because it's a band that I grew up with, a band that I loved, and a band that, for whatever reason, I feel you know. Well, there is a lot of reasons, but should have been way more than what they were. And we're going to dive into all that. And I can't wait to do it.
0: That makes two of us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we begin, we always start the same way in every episode, and that is what we're all about here on The Hook Rocks. Just like every rock song has a hook that pulls you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you?
0: Well, for me, you know, I was probably like 14 years old, and I I think it was like Van Halen, it, it all happened at once. I, it was Van Halen. It was the cars. It was Led up. And it just kind of music hit me all at once. In fact, when people ask me what was the first record you ever bought, it wasn't, I bought five records. <laughs> I went and bought five records at the same time, but um, yeah, I mean, it just all, it, it kind of hit me. It was, it was, you know, the music, the, 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 the image the you know, seeing pictures of, of musicians in magazines. That's how I found Aerosmith. I, Saw, you know, this band that looked cool. And then I looked through my sister's record collection, found toys in the attic, put it on, loved it. Then I'm thumbing through, you know, used records and I see rocks. And I'm like, hmm, that's another Aerosmith record. Bought that. I was like, ooh, this is even better. So, you know, I learned about Judas Priest uh through thumbing through used records and seeing Unleashed in the East and seeing that cover. Had no idea who they were. They were getting no airplay because British Steel wasn't out yet. And bought it and it blew me away. So you know, it, it, sometimes you hear something that, that 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 catches you and other times you see something that, that catches your eye. So, you know, that's what's that in my opinion, that's what's wrong with rock today is that the image is gone. There's no image anymore. There was a time in the 70s, 80s that you'd go and buy a you want to put a poster on your wall uh, of, you know, a band that, that you knew that you liked and meant something to you, but now, you know, you could identify everyone in the band. Now you really, there might be some good music out there, but the image is gone. So you lost one of the factors that would pull people and influence people was the image.
1: I agree a hundred percent. I've, I've said that for forever. You know, I, I am always yelling. I feel at the top of the mountain about that. When, when I was growing up, similar to you, you go to the record store and you'd be thumbing through um, you know, the, the different records and different bands and the covers captivated you. Like they were interesting. They were like, what is this all about? And you bought an album sometimes based on that cover, based on that imagery, and you went home and then you listened to it. And sometimes the music lived up to the cover. Sometimes it didn't. <laughs> um, but I think the way music is now and the way kids today, the attention spans are so short, The need for that imagery is so vital because if you have that imagery, it slows down that attention span, in my opinion. And bands today, the newer bands, a lot of them I love, don't, I think, appreciate that. That if you come out with something that is mysterious looking and just gives you a sense of wonder, a kid will will hang on to that more because it's it's different. It's something that he can't figure out yet. Because kids figure things out way too way too quickly these days.
0: No, I know it's a combination. I mean, if you ask Joe Perry, he'll say, "Well, okay, I was influenced by Jeff Beck's music, but also his image." And then it, it's then you go one generation further and you talk to Slash. Well, yeah, Joe Perry and Jeff Beck both influenced me. But, you know, so Slash now influences you know millions of other people. So, you know, he brought the less back, the Les Paul back from the grave and um you know it has image has a lot to do i mean so much to do with it of course the music does too but you know and the songwriting you know there's sound there's there's songwriting there's image there's all that it's a combination of all that and and that's what makes that's what makes it happen and and today's today's music is missing some of those elements
1: one of the bands that had a lot of image and had that sense of wonder and gave fans that sense of wonder especially a young kid was that back alley image that that bad boy image that was Guns N' Roses and that's who we're going to talk about today because that's what the podcast that you're on covers was that the beginnings the origins of Guns N' Roses through their popularity I was able to hear that first episode and really you know found it interesting that you know, this was at ground zero. This was the beginnings of this band that really a lot of, not a lot of people know about. There's some things out there that people know, and some things that people have learned. But to have someone that's really kind of close to it, that kind of smelled it and felt it, um, was you. And and um, it's interesting to kind of look back and see where that band's beginnings were. And now, after the reunion tour, and after now they're touring now. Um, possibly putting out new material is the rumor um, or new, a new album that already released a song or two. Um, when you think back at that time to today, did you expect, I know, I know you talked about slash, you knew slash was going to be something, right? You knew he was going to be a success. Did you know he would be this giant superstar that he is?
0: With slash I did. I mean, I used to argue with some of my friends that didn't think he was as good as he was. And I said, you'll see, he'll be in the Gallery of the Greats. And the Gallery of the Greats was something that Guitar Player Magazine did. And if you won Best Guitar Player five times, then you became in the Gallery of the Greats. So (laughs) here, 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 you know, we were like, you know, just kids, basically. And and, and I knew that Slash was superhuman. But when the rest of the guys came around and they were all working together, I saw it was also a perfect fit. You know, you, you, you needed all those guys to make that happen. And, and they all inputted, you know, if you try to divide up their, what they're worth as far as percentage wise in, in to make a hundred percent, you can't because right away you have to say Axel's worth 50% slash could be worth 50%. But wait a minute, what happened to Izzy Duff and Steven? And we throw their percentages in which are a little lower, but not much lower They uh, you're coming up with 200 or something close to it, so you had a a really good mix, and you also had there's a bunch of different elements that's here. Uh, you you had the music industry was not really doing anything in the mid 80s, you know, the 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 cool 60s and 70s rock was gone, the punk in, in the late 70s and very early 80s disappeared. You had some new wave, you had like maybe Motley Crue still hanging around doing something maybe Judas Priest, but not much. And uh, it was just not, there was really nothing there. And it was them putting their, it was they making music for themselves because nobody else was making good music anymore, but they just happened to click and they had material to write about because they didn't have to sit down and try to dream up this stuff. This stuff was the way they were living. You know, a lot of them didn't have anywhere to stay and they'd end up in the back of someone's car at the end of the night or on someone's couch, or maybe they'd hook up with a girl or something, but you know, they'd strike out too sometimes. And so they were basically living in this little rehearsal studio that was not meant to live in no bathroom. And, and you know, it was, we're talking about like, you know, eight feet by five feet. I mean, it was like a little storage unit almost, or maybe a little bigger, but not much. And so, you know, you got, there's, things happening and they're writing about these things live as they're happening and and they're bill it's not like one person came up with a riff and then put it on their four track and gave it to the rest of the band and they worked on it they they worked on material as it happened as a riff would rip out of someone's guitar and slash would hear Izzy play something and build on it and vice versa and you know an Axel would hear it and come up with something and you know, even Izzy came up with melody and lyrics too. But and Duff, it it just it was just a combination of all that coming at once. And and if you you know, I I witnessed ten of the twelve songs on Appetite for Destruction being debuted. And the only two would not being debuted that I didn't witness would be uh, in Anything Goes and Think About You that were written before Slash came into the picture. And I kind of grew up with Slash, so you know, yes, I did see them play that a year before Guns N' Roses and Hollywood Rose, but it still was, it wasn't debuted. It was played in other, other versions of Hollywood Rose before Slash started working with Axl. Uh, But not, not a lot of people know this, that Axel, Slash and Steven and sort of Izzy were working together for a bit, bef- you know, a year before Guns N' Roses and it didn't work. Izzy left real quick. He was only there for a couple, like literally one day, but the other three stuck around for three months, to try to make it work, and it, it didn't. But you know, you knew that Axel was special, and you knew Stephen was great. But it just, you know, Stephen was a little bit too loud with his double bass drums. It was more of a speed metal band sort of, and Axel's vocals were getting drowned out, and it just didn't work. But a, a year later, when Izzy was involved, and so was Duff, we knew Duff because Duff was in Road Crew, which was Slash's garage band for about a week or so. And Duff didn't stick around because they didn't have a singer and it wasn't, you know, it was just missing too many elements and Duff hit the ground running and wanted, and was looking for something a little bit more, you know, built up, ready to hit a club and, and road crew wasn't there, but they did, they clicked and they, they liked each other and it worked. It just didn't, it just didn't stick. And then, you know, when that, that came around again, that chance came around again and, you know, really, um, uh, Izzy, wa- Izzy a- a- and uh, and uh, Axel had worked with Tracy, in, in, you know, a little bit before, but it didn't stick. And you know, it was like who's, band? You know, it was Tracy's band, so Tracy's in control. Tracy Guns, that is, for LA Guns. But then Tracy didn't want to join Hollywood Rose because that was sort of Axel and Izzy's band, and then he wouldn't have control. But they they wanted to work with each other, so they decided, okay, let's play it smart. We'll take a safety. We'll keep our bands, but we'll start a side project called Guns and Roses—a little bit of both—and we'll just kind of control it. And we'll be a side—we won't take it seriously. It'll just be a side project. Let's see what happens. And it started working. The original bass player quit. Uh, Uli was the bass player from Ellie Guns, and he quit real quick. Uh, to actually go join a real band, I guess he didn't realize he was in a real band. But then you know Duff was their neighbor, and they picked up Duff like in two seconds, and you know it was starting to work. But you know you didn't have Slash there, and the, even though they were writing some songs and they were getting some things done, it just wasn't quite there. And you know Tracy Tracy didn't really want to go on the road trip that Duff booked to Seattle and, and Oregon, and you know it didn't seem very stable and either did rob gardner so they kind of left and and you know there was a show booked at the troubadour a week later it was like june sixth. that show was booked and this was like the end of may when they left and they said okay we got a show booked at the troubadour next week and we have this tour we got to get slash maybe steven will come too and uh you know slash had just joined this band called black sheep which He wasn't enthused about but it was a gig it was a heavy metal band but at least it was a stepping stone maybe and so he played a gig with them but you know axel and izzy really wanted slash to join back with them and slash you know i i i knew it was a perfect fit but i didn't think it would stick because it didn't stick the time before but uh it was certainly that's where that's where slash's heart was at and um you know they put it together they had that first gig and i was blown away even though I knew all the characters, I knew every single musician in that band, I was still knocked off my feet because things had changed this time because it got r- Izzy and, and Duff hid one of Steven's bass drums and it slowed everything down. And, uh, you know, they already had don't cry and slash put a master lead on there and it was ready. You know, it's the same lead you hear on the record now, even though that didn't show up an appetite, it would have, And but they wrote sweet child of mine, but we'll get to that. Um, so you know, you hear that, that don't cry song. It's like, wow. And I didn't hear uh, I that was the first time I heard uh think about you and move to the city. And um, those were good songs. They had some groove to them. And I was like, yeah, this is going to work. And I, that first show just totally blew my mind. And in fact, I recorded that show. And then I listened to don't cry that night when I got home a couple of times and I'm like, this is ready. This could be in a soundtrack in a movie. You know, you hear three, four registers of Axel's voice in that song, and you know, even though I knew Axel was good, that was the first time I'd heard him sing in different registers. Before that, it was just one high pitch Axel. It wasn't, you know, any other voices of Axel like the "It's So Easy" voices and stuff like that. But um, you know, soon after that welcome to the jungle was you know july 20th at the troubadour of 1985 which was what a couple months after they they got together welcome to the jungle is ready to go and completely uh arranged and and produced the way you hear it on the record right down to the guitar solo and you know they just couldn't do wrong i mean rocket queen came not long after that and paradise city a month or two later and then night train and then a week later my michelle and you know, three, four weeks later out to get me. So they didn't have any throwaway songs. Everything they were putting together sounds just like they do, like it did on the record. And so I knew that they were like as good as Led Zeppelin, you know, that just can't be a, there's no bad Les Zeppelin songs. So, I mean, there might be that got thrown off the table, but I don't think, I don't think so. I think what they just clicked so well, that whatever they did, seemed to work. And that's what this band was doing. Now, did I know they'd be as big as they were? Probably not. But I knew they'd have a gold record. I knew that, they, you know, I knew they'd get signed if they could stay together long enough and, and not, you know, uh, go to jail or, you know, have, have, God forbid, one of them pass away or something. But, you know, they, they were they were dancing with the devil. And when you do that, sometimes the devil takes you home and, and something, you know, something unfortunate could happen. But right. They got signed in, in March of '86. I almost wish that maybe they didn't get signed yet, and maybe another six. Because once they got signed, they they went okay. Let's go record our music. But they they, you know, they stopped writing music, and, and they would have. They were just on pace. They just kept writing music, and maybe we would have gotten six, seven more songs had they gone another three, four months without being signed.
1: Well, let's back up a little bit because you gave us a lot to chew on right there. Um When you think. Of Southern California, you think of the rock scene, you think of Van Halen, you know, in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, you think of, you know, Motley Crue in that early to mid 80s, and then Guns N' Roses. Those are, you know, there are a lot of other great bands during that period that came out of that area, but those are really the three that are defined or the definitive bands from the Southern California scene. And one thing they all have in common is that hunger, is that, um, Desire and, you know, that that edge that maybe a lot of the bands, other bands that maybe didn't hit that success that they did, had. You know, you mentioned, you know, Guns and Roses and sleeping, you know, in the back of a car or, or staying at some girl's house that they met or living in a studio or a rehearsal space that they shouldn't have been living in. I mean, do you hear that so similar stories, you know, with Motley Crue, you know, living in that house? um, you know, down this, down the street from the whiskey and, uh, and, you know, playing Gazzari's and you hear Van Halen, similar stories, you know, with Eddie bringing his guitar to high school and sitting in English class and doing scales and him and Alex really not having, you know, the, you you know, the, um, the life that maybe their parents wanted for them or, you know, their parents weren't exactly well off for them, you know, Pasadena. So you hear all those commonalities and you see the success that all three of those bands had. Um, As far as the hunger goes for the band, was that, do you think that that was just built in with all those members? Do you think some of them had more of a desire than others did? And do you think that's what, you know, seeing all these other bands succeed, do you think that's what kept pushing them?
0: Well, the answer is yes. I mean, Axel came from Indiana. So did Izzy. They came here, you know, at least a couple of times and went back and forth because they knew that if they're going to make it, if if they're going to make it in the music business, it's going to have to be in Los Angeles. Um, Duff did the same thing, came from Seattle, looking to LA to 150% serious about doing this. That's why he booked that tour to Seattle. He would hit the ground, found a good band and started booking gigs. Uh, Slash was born to do this because he was born with this mega super talent. I mean, if you get Slash in your band, I mean that that's the, the, you're doing really well. So Slash didn't have to travel; he was already here. Uh, but he grew up from parents that were in the music business. But you know, he just had this overwhelming talent. I saw it right away when I met him, and in, in his drawings, you know, for in school projects, I can see that he could draw as well as a disney artist you know without even looking at a picture he could just do it out of his head like it's a really good talented street artist five minutes later we were racing bmx and he was doing outrageous things that people didn't do in set 1978 maybe now they do them in fact they do even crazier things but you know you just knew that he was super talented i even was documenting his bike riding and keeping his artwork so when he started playing guitar You know, right away, I saw that thing that you would that somebody may have seen in Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton or, you know, someone like that. You knew that this guy is just going to do it one way or the other. So, I mean, yeah, once he once he got that into, you know, a year into the guitar playing, he he didn't look back. He knew that he's going to make his living. Uh, playing the guitar, he just didn't have to leave the city because he was already born in the city. That well, he wasn't born in the city, but he grew up in the city that was the right place to be in. And as far as Stephen, you know, Stephen, Stephen had to push his way up that ladder because Stephen was friends with Slash before he was playing drums, and and um you know they mo- they split apart for about a year or two because Stephen moved to the Valley which is, you know, maybe 30, 40 miles away. So, you know, you lose touch with people, no cell phones or anything like that back then. But when Steven reemerged, he was playing drums and he had seen Slash play in in Road Crew, you know, in in the end of 1983 at a a New Year's Eve party and was blown away that Slash was as good as he was and demanded, even though there was nothing wrong with Adam Greenberg, who was the drummer in, in, in Slash's band at the time, demanded that, steven be in the band and 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 replace adam with you know put me in there with with that instead of adam and he auditioned for slash and you know he, i guess he 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 convinced slash that yeah i need you know he's there and he was serious about it and he wasn't just like yeah i play drums he he was like no i'm playing drums and this is what i'm going to do for a living and so you you caught the right five you caught the five musicians that were in it hook, line, and sinker. And that's why they got into that car that they knew for a fact wouldn't make it to Seattle or wherever the hell they were going. I don't know if they're, maybe they're going to work. Yeah, they were going to Seattle first, but, uh, you know, it it, it wasn't, it, it didn't make it. And, and it didn't matter because they hitchhiked, you know? So th- that's pretty much what held that band together because yes, they were definitely fit musicians, but they were just, all musicians on their own that met each other. Now they suffer and they had to worry about stress about how they're going to get, where are they going to get some food or money and how they're going to get to this gig. That, that was caused you know, a couple of days of stress on them. And that kind of solidified them together. When, by the time they came back to Los Angeles, not only were they a, a five musicians that were meant for each other, they were like blood brothers because they had suffered a little bit in the same you know, element together. And so it brought them, it kind of brought them together. You know, they had each other's backs and, and they were like a little gang and they just, you know, hit hit the street, you know, t- booking gigs and, and, and growing from each gig and growing their crowds, each gig and growing their, their, their set lists. And, you know, all I did was maybe help pay for some ads and Bam magazine and, flyers and you know a demo tape and a little bit and a little bit of money for a backdrop just you know odds and ends food uh just i made it a little easier for them to get to the next gig uh but they 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 had they had that you know they, they they had that hunger to do that
1: was that when you look back at the brotherhood that you talk about when did the friction start was that was that Always there under the surface or did that develop more and more over time?
0: There's always going to be friction when you have that caliber of musicianship. You know, it's like putting five chefs in the same kitchen, even though they might come up with something really good. There's going to be some friction, (laughs) you know, that, that just is. Uh, but they knew they they knew that they worked on each other well. I mean Slash, Slash knew what to do with what Izzy came up with, Izzy knew what to do with Slash came up with Axel knew what to do with the whole band came up with and just it all just clicked. You had the punk rocker duff, you had, you know, Izzy was the Hanoi rocks, Rolling Stone guy, Slash was the hard rock blues guy, Steven was the funk master, and, and Axel was just a little bit of everything. And so they knew it, even though they all had strong opinions of whatever they were doing. Uh, but they somehow they knew that the music they were creating couldn't have been created without all of their input. So it, it, they made it work. They just made it work.
1: When you think of the beginnings with them and you think of with, with Tracy Guns and, you know, it was talked about in the episode where they were friends, but they were also rivals um, at, at the same time, you know, they're both extraordinary guitar players. Slash is obviously, you know, more on the pedestal, per se, than maybe Tracy is because of how big Guns N' Roses was and, and, and is. But how did that dynamic, you know, kind of go their separate ways? I mean, you mentioned that Tracy didn't really think it was serious. Am I, am I correct in saying that?
0: Well, Tracy was definitely in hook, light, and sinker to be a musician. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think he wanted to just get, get into a car and go to Seattle, you know? And, there, and it was that was not the only thing. I mean, it, it, Axel will give you one story. Tracy will give you another story. Everyone has their own story. And you know what? They're both right because it's their stories. But uh, why that didn't work out. I mean, there. you know, I've never really heard Tracy's story. But from the research I did, that they were arguing about the arrangement of a song or they got into a little bit of a a beef in the gig before the Troubadour. And, you know, the, the, the icing on the cake that, 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 or I should say that the straw that broke the camel's back was the Seattle tour, but there was, you know, that was just a straw that broke the back. There was some other things going on between them that, that there was some arguments about and and they were banging heads. Uh, But, but as far as the rivalry, when I first met, well, I knew Slash when I was 11, but I didn't know Tracy until I was maybe about 16 or so. And um, I we went to a party in, in our neighborhood and and Pyrus, which was Tracy's first band, was playing that party. And they were doing Led Zeppelin covers. And Tracy blew me away. I mean, he he became Jimmy Page. He he held the Les Paul. He had it down to his knees. He moved. They were playing rock and roll, that song, rock and roll. And, and he just, you know, hit it right on the button. I mean, you know, it. Jimmy Page would have tipped his hat to that. He, he 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 did it perfectly. And I'm looking at Slash like, who is this guy? Oh my god! I, and Slash says, No, no, I know him. I know him. And what I didn't know is that because we we got separated in junior high school, and Slash went to Bancroft, I was at John Burroughs, and and Tracy was already playing six years already in before Slash even picked up a guitar. So Tracy was established musician in school. He'd play his guitar, bring his guitar, and play it, and you know doodling all over the place and Slash is just now strumming a few chords. So, you know, th- th- there was rivalry pretty quick because Slash, you know, within six months was on the scene playing, you know, parties. And sometimes they play parties together. And when I say together, not in the same band, but, you know, two bands playing the same party. And so there was this rivalry going on. And when Slash, when uh, Hollywood Rose fell apart, at least the version with Slash in it, right away, Axel joined LA Guns. And so that's a rivalry, you know, Axel went to the enemy as far as Slash is concerned. And worse than that, I got stuck in the middle of that because Axel called me and asked me to photograph that show. And I was, I was ashamed to tell Slash that I was helping them because that was his, you know, Tracy was his longtime rival and Axel now just joined up with his longtime rival. So that actually makes Axel his rival. And, but of course I did it. Um, but it, 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 you know, there, there was definitely a rivalry there. So it's kind of interesting that Slash ended up winning that rivalry when it came down to the final, the band that Tracy started, you know, Tracy was 50% of that band. And, uh, but Tracy showed up, Tracy showed up to a couple of gigs after, after Tracy quit the band, he still showed up to some of the gigs and, he knew that they were that they were the thing. He, there was no doubt about it. He knew that that version of Guns N' Roses was better than, you know, it worked out for the better. Those guys clicked better. I'm not saying Tracy couldn't have written music with them. He could have, but it, it wouldn't have been, you know, you wouldn't have had Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City, you know, a handful of other songs that really put Guns N' Roses on the map. In fact, those were the three that did it welcome to the you know when it comes to mtv it was jungle sweet child and then the knockdown punch was you know paradise city which put them on a pedestal forever you know in, in a thousand years from now kids will turn 14 and still know about those videos and get influenced to buy that record and, and you know and, and and like you know that music will change their life even after we're all gone That it's gonna live on
1: when i think of welcome to the jungle I still remember seeing the debut video for it on Headbangers Ball at like midnight or one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night. And I remember that it didn't hit. It didn't connect originally. Uh, it wasn't until they re-released it a few months later that it exploded. When, well, when
0: okay. That... I, I, I have this. Okay, go on. I'll tell you the story. But go yeah, on. Well,
1: I was, was going to ask you. So. So when that initially didn't happen, when, the, when, when Welcome to the Jungle came out and did fall flat for the, for initially, what was the reaction of the band? What was the, what was the sentiment of the, of the members when that happened? Because it's a great song. And a lot of times, as we know, music is all about timing. And of course, you know, a few months later when it was re-released, it blew up and the rest is history. But what was... Okay, I'll
0: tell you what happened. Headbangers Ball... Got it. You know, they knew that that was a good song. They played it, but they also had pressure from MTV because the band had the the appetite for destruction. The original cover was controversy and there was some rumors about drug use and this and that. And so they had a bad reputation and and Viacom, which is basically owned MTV, didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to clash with some of their sponsors. So they, they just didn't allow MTV to play the song. And but Guns N' Roses did hit the road with the Colt and, and you know, right when the record came out in eighty seven as as supporting act. And when they'd play a city, the next day they'd sell two, three hundred records in that city because people see Guns N' Roses and say, Hey, that's a good band, bought their record. Same thing happened. They went on tour with Motley Crue. Same thing happened with that. And then they went on the road with Alice Cooper and same thing happened with that. So now all of a sudden there's 200,000 records sold with no airplay whatsoever, other than maybe like Caney C and a couple underground stations somewhere out there in the world. Um, Geffen's ready to throw in the towel and and, and throw I mean, have them record a second record. And Tom Zutat, who was their, the guy that signed them, said, uh-uh get MTV to play Welcome to the Jungle. And, and, and uh, so David Geffen called up his buddy at VICOM and and VICOM explained, we're not going to play the song, told him why. And then, but as a favor, they'd play it one time on a Sunday night at 5 a.m. New York time, 2 a.m. Los Angeles time. And that would be it. And that's all, sorry, buddy, but we'll do that for you. That's about where, that's, we'll sneak it in and that's it. Well, they snuck it in. And their switchboards blew up wow. and, and and everyone called m t v and said, "Hey, who'll play that again? you know whatever we They kept requesting it, and within a week, it was in top ten rotation and I don't know how long I lost the timeline on this, but not long after that, they were moving two hundred thousand copies a week and and uh, and so there you have it you know it 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 it's it, it, it just a matter of m t v helped catapult that out there. I think the record would have gone gold anyways at some point, but MTV really put that in front of people and then it blew it up. And that, and then, you know, Sweet Child of Mine came out, which was a a, a knockdown, you know, Welcome to the Jungle was a slap in your face. Like, wow, who's this band? You know, they got you, they got your attention. Sweet Child of Mine was a knockdown punch. And then Paradise City was a knockout blow. That was it. it. It was those three in a row that, that just showed the world that, hey, this this album, Appetite for Destruction, it, it is just, you know, an album from start to finish full of goodies.
1: That's amazing because I've never heard that. And I've always wondered why I saw that video. I mean, I remember being at home on that Saturday night. I forget how old I was. I think it was like 12 or 13 and seeing the video and then never see it again or shouldn't say again. But for months, I didn't see it.
0: Right. Right. And, and like I was, once every two months.
1: Yeah. And I was like, why, you know, whatever happened to that band, whatever, you know, because we didn't have the internet now we didn't know, we didn't know up-to-date information as we know now, but it's interesting to hear that how M- MTV was the reason why it wasn't getting played. And then MTV was the reason why they blew up. It's kind of <laughs> right. like, well, both yeah, ends. That,
0: exactly. It was, it was MTV had all the control. They either make you or break you. And in this case, they didn't need to 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 push something. They just needed to show it. Yeah. And, and and it got pushed by requests. see uh, the music stood for itself. They didn't have to slam it down your throat. They did, but they just refused to play it. And so then nobody knew about it. So as soon as we got it played one time in the least desirable spot, it was at least enough for somebody to to start getting on the phone and calling MTV. And, and, you know, it, it, it caught people. It just caught people. It's like, no, what? what is that? What is that? Who is that? So, you know, that that really made a huge difference.
1: When they were recording that album, and obviously it's regarded as one of the best debuts in rock history. When they were recording that, what was that, that process for them? What was that environment for Guns N' Roses as they recorded Appetite for Destruction?
0: It was very simple, actually, for them because they they had already they already recorded a couple demos before that, so they knew how to, they they did their own demo. Then they did a demo with Manny uh, Carl, Carl Charlton Charlton from uh, you know Nasworth. They did a little demo with him, and then um, they did um, uh, what, they did something with Spencer Profford. They they did a, another demo uh, as a test to see if he could you know produce the record, but. What's interesting here is when they got signed. I told you earlier they wanted to hit the ground recording, and and Tom zutet said you're you got a, a really good a lot of good songs, but you need one or two more, and the band disagreed, but uh they they they, they, they you know got, Tom Zutat wasn't budging, and uh, they came up with You're Crazy in May of you know '86, and that that was good song, but it wasn't enough to say okay you're ready. And then what's interesting is I I remember Slash hitting home runs with the Wawa pedal in 81, 82 with playing Dave's and Confuse. And he just really knew how to control that Wawa pedal in awesome version of Daves and Confuse. Somewhere in time, that Wawa pedal broke and he never replaced it. For his he didn't ask me for one, but for his birthday in July of 86, I bought him a Wawa pedal. And I said, Remember this thing? You used to be radical on this thing. Okay. Next thing I know, one month later, Two new songs show up, Switch Hell to Mine and Brownstone. Both have Wawa pedal and both, will, you know, are knockdown punches. Uh, Tom Zutin said, okay, you're ready. Let's do this. But before we put you in the studio to waste valuable time, we want to make sure you're a little tighter. You know, make, don't make any mistakes or whatever. You want to get it in one or two takes. And, and um, so what happened was while they were in pre-production, just rehearsing, they ended up writing it so easy by mistake. It just showed up. Which was one of one of my favorite songs, probably the best song to open a show with, gets your blood pumping, uh, and that was that. That was the cherry on the cake, as far as I'm concerned. But now they get to the okay, they got, they're excited, they met, they already knew they had good songs. Now they got a sweet child, Brownstone, and it's so easy to so say. Now you know they're really excited to get this music out. They they burned through a couple producers. They finally found Mike Klink, who was involved in in the engineer of of one of the greatest live records ever, which is, you know, uh, Strangers in the Night. Uh, Now, if if I'm allowed to keep one record and that's it, it would be that record. But anyways, uh, they got the right producer. You know, the producer basically recorded what they had. And it was very easy for them in the studio. It was very natural, very easy. It wasn't frustrating. I'm sure it was a little frustrating to Mike to getting them all there at the right times because nobody drove and they were all flaky. And, you know, some people were sleeping in that studio because they had nowhere to go. So it's probably a mess if you ask <laughs> if you ask, uh, you know, Mike clink. But as far as actually laying down their tracks when they were there, it was pretty simple i was there for some of it and i it just was very smooth and they knocked out their parts and and it was sounding excellent i'd hear the daily tapes and you know you just knew that it, it was a masterpiece and i remember hearing it when it was finally mixed but before the record came out maybe you know two three months before it came out and uh or i don't know when not 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 fully mixed but a rough mix anyways a rough mix from the studio before it got really mixed like in new york uh, But, you know, it was like, wow, I heard it through headphones and it was, you know, axle sounded so good that the guitar sounded so good, the solo sounded so good. The music, I already knew the music, you know, it wasn't anything new, but I was so excited that they were able to capture it so perfectly, you know, so that the process to them was so simple. They just went in and recorded, you know, it took them a couple of months to do it. And when I say a couple of months, I know you hear Led Zeppelin records the record in three days, but uh, it wasn't that simple but it, you know they got it done
1: as far as the collective the, the the five guys that are going in there right and recording this album was it a, an adjustment for them to be in a studio because there's they're such they're, they're a band that relies on that live element and that, that lot that vibe that's created when it, with a live performance did they ever feel like they were being restricted, or were they were, feel, they were feeling, you know, just it was hard for them to capture that moment? Because you definitely capture the the, the Guns N' Roses vibe on the album once you listen to, it. but when they were recording it, was there ever concern about that from them?
0: Not even close. They knew that they wrote masterpieces. They knew it was great, and they were proud of it, and they they were anxious to get it out to the world. So. We're going in the studio and laying it down properly. You know, they, they like I said, they made a couple demos. Uh, they, they did, uh, you know, Live Like a Suicide was recorded at Pasha Studio, and and the deal was they were going to record two songs with Spencer Proffer as a test to see if they liked him to produce the the record. That the test failed. They didn't like the way they turned out. The songs weren't, weren't that good at all. They, they were horrible, actually. Uh, and, but they got to also use his studio without his presence. to just use his engineer to record uh, live like a suicide. So they they already had that experience to go in a studio and record that. They they did that with, with you know with the Sound City demos, which had like you know I don't know twenty seven songs on it. A lot of, a lot of them were, were one two or three takes of a certain song, but there was uh, you know they recorded everything they had. And they laid it down on a two-track, so they already did the live thing, and it, it sounded actually good on the Sound City studios. But they were all smart enough to know that if you want the world to get a hold of this, you got to go in there and do it right. And they had, they had the right producer, and they had, you know, it, they had it, it, it all worked. You know, Mike Klink captured it perfectly. And they knew it and it was so simple, you know, they record the song and then they listen back to it and it sounds great. It it, it gets their blood pumping. So they, they, it's not like, Oh, they're, you know, slash now recorded his last record live in the studio. And that's how he, that's how he, he feels as more like what you're saying that the fire in that, and, and you know, the leads are improv Most of the leads are improvised. They're just, he just rips one out and that's what you hear on the record. But in this case, the leads weren't improvised. He already had all these leads for, and he didn't write them. He just, they came out at rehearsal, the first time he played these songs and it fit. So he remembered them when it was time for the gig. And, you know, it's not like he had a cassette player and he relearned the lead. He played it. It worked. And he knew what he played somehow. His mind knew what, 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 you know, what message got sent down to his fingers and whatever he ripped out, he knew it fit. So he just played it again. So they all knew their parts. So, getting the chance to record it professionally was a dream. It was easy for them because they knew they had the material. They just needed to get it the right person to capture it, which they went through four or five of the wrong people. And they finally they found, you know, Mike Klink. And then uh, they found him and they, it, you know, it just, it worked. It was like the missing piece in the puzzle. In
1: the episode that I listened to, It made mention that after Appetite was released, it seemed like the band wanted to or maybe, you know, different members of the band kind of wanted to get far away from that Appetite sound, whereas Slash wanted to kind of stay in that. And then you had Use Your Illusion. Is that correct in saying that is, is that,
0: a, well, is that? Yeah, it is it's somewhat correct. I mean, it's different members have different opinions, but I think Axel knew that he had a handful. He had November rain. He, you know, we had, there was don't cry. There was a bunch of other stuff they were working on. He, he knew it was great. There's no, there's no, no doubt about it. He knew appetite for destruction. What was the shit? And he, that was his goal to get it out. But once he got it out, I think in my opinion, he wanted to show the world there's, as great as this is, there's other stuff that's a little different. I mean, if you look at Zeppelin and you look at each record, it evolves, but they're all good. You know what I'm saying? You can't say one top this or one top that. They just, they were all good in their own way, but they they evolved as the band grew. You know, they, So I think Axel's was just anxious to evolve and show the world, I got other things besides this bag of tricks that you all love. So I think that's what that was about. When
1: was it when was the point of no return um, with the friction in the band? When when did you see or, or, you know, were you witness to that moment where I was like, man, this is not going to end well for the band?
0: Well, I was there. I did witness it, but I was I was always more hopeful that it would just pull itself together. I, I, you know, things were a little crazy. They had been on tour for a couple of years straight and uh, you know, Izzy was already gone a few years. So they hadn't really tried to even write. And I knew it was going to be different with not using Izzy. In fact, it was different writing for use your illusion, even though Izzy was still there because they were writing from their own places and then, you know, showing their whatever they came up with to other members rather than putting it together Rather than coming up with a riff and having the rest of the band, you know, work on it, so the writing had already changed for Use Your Illusion. Now it was about to change again because you didn't have Izzy. I'm not saying they couldn't work without Izzy; they certainly could. I mean, if you listen to like It's Strange, there's Izzy's not even involved in that. And there you go. That's one of the, you know, that's the masterpiece. But um, sure, they could do it. But it was just going to be a little different. It just, it just, they, they weren't all on the same page, and you had, you had people influencing them when I say influence, not musically, but what they should be doing, you know, people trying to influence their personal life or, you know, what directions they should be going in. And and so it it was starting to fall apart. And I thought, okay, so they just need a break and they'll pull it back together. But you know, that break took like 20 years, (laughs) but it it doesn't matter because it, it, it happened. They're back together. They're working together. And so that was, you know, for nine years, all I did was try to, get Axel it when I would do interviews I would really talking to Axel hoping he would listen to these interviews and hear some of what my opinion was between some of these misunderstandings and that it could all be worked out with a little you know marriage counseling therapy type of you know that kind of thing and because uh, they could work it out if they just you know if they want to but it, it just got dark, and, and 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 there's reasons I you know I'd be speculating if I said really much more, but I have my own opinions of that of, of what went wrong. But it, it almost doesn't matter what went wrong because, like I said, they're they're working together again, so they're out there, they're touring, so it, it's it's good by me that that it's, it's you know in the end it doesn't matter what what fixed it, but is fixed.
1: You, you talked about in the episode that. Trying to use the correct terminology, that Axel maybe underestimated the magic that was the band. He felt he could put other musicians in there and have it beat Guns and Roses, and it just wasn't. Um, Was it more? Uh, Well, I
0: I, I, I don't remember exactly saying that, but um, hold on. But but what, but what what it was was since Slash was not available because he had quit the band. It then left Axel no choice but to hire other people. Okay. So there's two, there's two ways of looking at that. It's not like Axel fired Slash and said, I'm gonna do this without him. It fell apart as Slash actually quit. So it, it, you know, it's not like Slash was there and Axel said, nah, I, I, we're gonna work with other people. And it's not the way, it, you know, Slash quit. So Slash did leave. So at that point it left Axel no choice but to search and find some other musicians. And he did find some other musicians. And is it going to be the same? Absolutely not. Is it going to be good? Yeah, of course it's going to be good. Axel's involved in it, it's going to be good. Uh, it's just going to be a little different. That's all. And that's what it was. It was different, but still good. Um, you you know, so whether you want to call it Guns and Roses, some people say it's a, a solo project. Doesn't matter what you call it. You're working with different musicians. So it's going to sound different, no matter what you call it. That's a, That's going to be a fact. So, you know, that's, that's how that goes.
1: You mentioned a lot you know, that when you did interviews, you were speaking sometimes directly to Axel in your in your comments and your answers in the interview. But I also kind of observed Duff, you know, kind of also trying to connect over the years. The two of them slash and Axel together is that a is that a true statement?
0: Yeah, Duff was always a good neutral person. Duff, Duff Duff's very neutral, and, and he was always wanted to be the you know the peacemaker in that. And that's when when Duff started working with Axel again and they bumped into each other. I thought that upped the chances a lot, you know, of them making, you know, that's a good middleman, you know, to work with. For a while, I might have been the only person that still talked to both of them. Um, And then after I wasn't doing it, nope, there was really nobody. And so the fact that Duff was then talking to Axel again was a hope that, something could happen. Now, I'm not saying Duff did that, but it was, I saw it as a hope. I saw it as a good hope. And, and well, in the end it worked. So we all never really know what did it, but you know, obviously it, 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 it happened and, and we're there. So, but Duff was always neutral.
1: When we first began this conversation, I, I said that it was a band that defined or one of the bands that defined my youth, one of the greatest bands ever, but there's also a sense of disappointment. Because there could have been so much more with the band, right? There could have been, I mean, I mean, the, the amount of time it took to make Chinese Democracy, you know, my mind always goes, there could have been three, four Guns N' Roses albums during that time. Obviously, that didn't happen. And obviously, it, well, here, it was here, impossible. Here's the
0: thing. In my opinion, Chinese Democracy was done within two years. He needed a year to find musicians. And then they started recording. And there was songs were, songs were written. So it was there. It just took you know another ten years to come out because of other things with record companies and whatever. But it, it didn't. It, it, people think it took so many years to make it. Really didn't. It just okay. took so many years to come out.
1: Nevertheless, though, I mean, that long time. You know, as a fan, I'm thinking, man, this could be. I mean, I, I always think think to myself with Guns of Roses, kind of like with I'm. It's there's such a a mystique about them because of that that great debut album followed up by a tremendous album user illusion one and two, two parts of an album. And then it, like we all wanted more and it just, it didn't happen until the reunion tour. Now it's finally They're going to finally start working together or they're going to come out with new music. What's your sense on that? Cause you were, like I said, you were at ground zero. You were close to, you know, the, the two main parts, you're close to everybody, but the two main figures, and Slash. Yeah, you know, how do you define your, if if I can use the term disappointment, um, with the band and and not doing more after you Use Your Illusion?
0: You could lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So you can't force people to write music together that aren't on the same page. Yeah, uh, it's it's that simple. Uh, sure, the, twenty years got wasted, and and we could have had you know twelve, thirteen more records out of that, but. It wasn't meant it didn't happen. You know, there's could have, would have, should have. I understand that. And we will never really know what was there. And that's why I'm saying I wish they didn't even get signed as fast as they did, because we would have had another six, seven songs from the Appetite era that would have been in that same that same basic mode of how that record was put together. Um, But remember, you're writing about things in your life, you know. Later on, you're writing about how the record company ripped you off, but back then, you're writing about the police chasing you and whatever, and this and that, and where you're going to sleep tonight, and whatever. But so, it's where you are in your life about what you write about. So, who knows what, you know, sure, there's music that would have come out, but who really knows, you know, if it was a right match, or if they were on the same page to put together that kind of stuff. I mean... You know, in the end, you could say if Izzy didn't leave, maybe things would have been different and maybe it wouldn't have fallen apart. There's a hundred different things you could but in the end you there's nothing you could do with it. You do have music they gave you, uh, lots of it. Hopefully we get some more. And and uh you can't cry for what's spilt in the middle.
1: Do you think that sense of danger that they kind of had in the beginning is what propelled them? Because let's think about the times when They came out with Appetite. There was the glam era. There was the teased hair, the makeup. Everybody kind of looked, started to look the same. Everybody kind of started to sound the same. And then here comes Guns N' Roses with this completely different image. Although some of the early photos did kind of emulate that glam look. But I think they quickly realized that maybe that look didn't match the sound. And they kind of went for more of that organic, authentic look that they ended up being known for. But do you think, you know, that 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 element of danger, you know, is what made them mysterious it, it is what gave fans that sense of wonder about them?
0: Well, OK, so it, it, you're right about that. That that, 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 that that glam thing they were dipping with for a while. But that was more of like, is you know. Influenced by the New York Dolls, bringing that to the band and, and and them dressing up the way they did and being hitting that glam. But the music was never glam. It wasn't poison. It wasn't bubblegum rock. It was right. always it was always to the floor, hard rock, whatever you want to call it. I guess I, you can call it hard, good, really good hard rock. But um, some people call the hard rock punk. But uh, yeah, I mean, right, they, 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 the image changed a little bit. Uh, they were fooling around with the glam in, you know, 85, 86, a little bit, more so 85. And by, the, you know, the midway through 86, the glam look was pretty much gone. Uh, although there was a few photo shoots where they, they kind of dolled up a little bit, I, I, I have to admit. But uh, it, it, the music was always in your face, harder, you know, harder, serious music. So, yeah, that's that, I mean, that's pretty much the, the the image pretty much became the image i was telling you about the kind of band you want to put their poster on your wall because you know there there there's a good image in, in in how they look live and so in the end they they adapted basically the hard rock image rock and roll that you you know that 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 influences people in
1: well, it was easy to catch people's attention too, with just how different they looked it's outside of what Motley Crue had become, Poison, and all these other bands. All of a sudden you have this band that looks like they live, you know, in an alley. And you're like, wow, oh, that's interesting. What what are these what's this band about? Kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation about how that image kind of strikes a chord with people. That glam image struck, struck a chord with people for a few years, but people were tiring of it. They were kind of getting, it was kind of getting repetitive. Um, and they, they came out with the music that was different too as well. It wasn't bubblegum type of, you know, pop rock that was kind of being released and kind of MTV kind of got a hold of the image. And I think also too, when we talk about MTV, yes, maybe they didn't want to play them because they didn't, they had that bad reputation that they had or a reputation that they had. But also, they didn't kind of fit the mold at the time, right? They didn't really kind of, they weren't doing what anybody else was doing. And let's face it, at that time, everybody was having success. So it's kind of refreshing when you think back when they came along, how they came along, because it did kind of fracture and change the course of rock music at that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you look back at what the Stones, the image the Stones have, or Zeppelin or Aerosmith, any of those bands like that it's 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 their image wasn't much different it was just a little bit more a little different but not much different and in in the end that you know the image that they came down but they're they 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 had an interesting fit together you know axel has red hair slash has that curly hair and he's got steven on the drums who's blonde and duff who's got like the punk rock a little black in his hair and so if you look at a picture of all of them there's it's just kind of it kind of gets you, you know, that this is, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, uh, a band uh, of something that's probably going to sound cool.
1: They were like pirates, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, there was, they had a good fit to it. They had, you know, Izzy had the black hair and it, you just had a little bit, um, you just knew that something was cool there.
1: As we close here, how do you define Guns N' Roses?
0: um I define them a, 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 as a band that that came together at the right time in the right place and recorded music that's that will last forever basically that's the way that's the way I see it and it changes people's life when, when you know I grew up an Aerosmith fan and, and so certain music in you know you get through your day with it and 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 that's people, People find a band like that, and and that band helps them get through whatever issues they're having, or makes their day better, or whatever. It pumps up their blood. You call it whatever you want to call it. It 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 just makes people happy. Music makes people happy, and so you know that band has definitely put a dent in in, in the history of music. The same way you know the Beatles or the Stones or Aerosmith or Zeppelin or Queen or you know a handful of other bands will, will stand the test of time. So they they have tattooed themselves in that same element where like I said a thousand years from now people will definitely know and research who this band was and where they came from and that's what this whole podcast was about um the podcast was about finding exactly from like you said from from ground zero Going through the early, you know, talking to Adam Greenberg, the drummer, and him telling you that he, they, they were aware that Slash was above their element, and they were just happy to be there for the time they were there. But they knew he would move on because he was at a higher caliber. So, you know, he, eventually he met musicians the same caliber, and that became Guns and Roses. But you get to hear things that you wouldn't have, like, well, I put out my book in 2007, I don't know if you have it, Reckless Road. Uh, Guns N' Roses and the making of "Appetite for Destruction." It pretty much covers A to Z, but it you don't get deep, deep, deep. You get a few words in here and there, and if, you know it's very interesting. But this podcast gives you an ex- you're a fly on the wall on these musicians. You know, we got Rob Gardner, who was original drummer from from uh, Guns N' Roses. You get his story on him taking that sliding door. They asked him to stay when when, when Tracy left, and. They were perfectly happy with him. They, Slash could have joined and it would have been Rob Gardner. And You know what? The band would have made it um, that way. It, it, it wasn't going to change that much. But uh, don't get me wrong. Steven added something that Rob probably couldn't have added, but it still would have worked. So you get his take on... How that affected his, the rest of his, you know, the way he lives now and what, what could have maybe been if he stayed in the band. But you get that perspective, perceptive of, of, of different things. But it's not just him. It's, it's Chris Weber who was in Hollywood Rose with Axel and Izzy and that, you know, the wrote songs recorded. You get, you get all of this information that's very interesting on how this attempted so many different ways, but finally came together with the appetite for destruction lineup the way it did in June of 1985. So it, it it gives you, it gives you that. And that's why um, it was important. You know, when we put together the book, Jason and I talked about doing some kind of documentary to thoroughly go through this and we never got around to doing it and we probably never would have. And then the pandemic kind of made everyone go on zoom. And he had this idea since he wasn't working that much, maybe now's a good time to, do this project by zoom and um and well for two reasons it, it was available and, it, and and it was safe <laughs> we didn't you know we weren't getting COVID through zoom but it it it, it turned out it to, to be very informative and and uh it's acceptable you know it works it works and so that i i forgot to mention that earlier but so we'll, we'll leave off with that but but the back to the original question that's what means guns and roses means to me I was happy to be a part of that and be there and witness it. And so to me, to get this information out to other people that want to know about it, I probably feel as good as them recording this music and getting it to people because they created music that makes people happy and now I'm helping create content that makes people learn about the music they they want to know about. So it's kind of, you know, it makes you feel good inside when someone gets a hold of the information and they're thankful that they were able to learn about it. So uh, it, that's, you know, guns and roses means to me, it means the world to me and me, you know, I, I got, I, I grew up loving music and then I got to see my friends create music that everyone loves. So it, it it was special times.
1: This is such a passionate thing for you. When you go through the archives of guns and roses, you know, you've, you've had this material for years Um, when you go through it and you're putting something together like this, whether it's your book, whether it's this podcast, what is that feeling for you when you start to kind of revisit these things and go through these memories? You know, obviously, as we get older, we forget a lot of, you know, a a lot about a lot of things, right? Because we get the files in our brain, you know, just keep turning and turning. Is there anything that like you maybe had forgotten about that when you do these things? It kind of reintroduces
0: you to those moments. I didn't really forget about it, but, you know, when I was putting together Reckless Road in the beginning, it was really 1993, 1994, even though it didn't come out till 2007, 2008, I spent a year. Actually, I spent 15 months on it working four to five hours a day. That's how that's how on top of it I was. Laying out photos the way, you know, on the art boards and making text to go with these photos, you know, information about that gig and the flyer and the ticket stub and the ad from the Bam magazine and whatever newspaper clipping that might have been around. Uh, But so and then listening to the shows to transcribe them. It all brings back the memories of. Of of these, you know, of, of that happening and. You know, sure, you have the record, you listen to it. But when I go back and look at some of these shows, I do remember being there and I do remember witnessing these songs being debuted for the first time. Some of the times, the first time I ever heard, like Rocket Queen, I heard them do it rehearsal. They worked on it like, you know, I heard it like eight, nine times. They went through it. But like Welcome to the Jungle, I didn't hear it at all. I just heard it the same time the crowd heard it. Uh, you know, Sweet Child of Mine, I saw them write it. Um, Brownstone, um i heard it for the first time when the crowd heard it for the first time so i remember every time i'm at the whiskey watching another band i remember i'm looking at that stage i remember where i was when they used to play there and where i record things from and so i have lots of little memories of this stuff uh, they're all good and i'll keep them with me but it, it makes me happy to be able to get this information out uh, and and you know and and people could, that want to know more about this stuff or see images from that time or the flyers and all that you know, memorabilia. I know it's like a treasure trove is what it is to a fan. And I know this because I was an Aerosmith collector. I would have killed to have somebody document Aerosmith the way I document Guns N' Roses. The
1: podcast is The First 50 Gigs, Guns N', Guns N Roses and the Making of Appetite for Destruction. Mark, it's been a pleasure to talk these things with you. Thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Everyone, that is Mark Cantor. Check out that podcast through pantheonpodcast.com. The first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the Making of Appetite for Destruction, available on all podcast platforms. I'm your host, Jay Scott. Take care of each other. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Presents adjusting to the suburbs. I
0: never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer, and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now?
1: <laughs> no, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.